Businesses of all sizes have been affected by COVID-19. In response to this, Post Media Solutions has created a five-step guide aimed to help you adapt your business during this global crisis. To get this free guide, visit postmediasolutions.com forward slash adapt. Can COVID-19 be cured? That's the hope some people are clinging to as they see pictures of deserted streets and cities worrying about having enough space in their morgues. Just turning on your phone can be terrifying. I'm Anik Bode, and this is 10.3. Today, National Post health reporter Sharon Kirky and I talk about treatments for the virus that is shutting down the world, old malaria drugs which may or may not help, and a vaccine that may be many months, if not years, away. You can subscribe to 10.3 on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening now. Please leave us a rating and a review and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, how are you? I'm well. Monique, how are you? I'm okay. A little bit tired and socially distanced. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a lot of uh, news that's come out about COVID-19 in the past few weeks. I'd like to talk about treatments and vaccines for it in a minute, but can we just start by talking about some of the new things we've learned about COVID-19 recently? Yeah, the virus that causes COVID-19 is starting to give up some of its secrets. One of them is just how silently it can spread. Scientists now think that humans incubate the virus for an average of five days, but also up to two weeks before people have symptoms like a fever or a dry cough, and some never develop symptoms. And there is a concern now, a growing concern, that those people, the so-called asymptomatic, are really driving a lot of the spread. Because it was originally thought that, you know, maybe 1% of people who get infected don't show symptoms. But now it's believed as high as 60%, according to some reports. There was a study that was just published in Nature from scientists in China. And that study was based on, I think, 26,000 labbed confirmed cases reported in Wuhan, which was the epicenter of the outbreak. And the researchers in that study estimate that at least 59% of infected people were out and about, walking about, not knowing they were infected, which is why the virus spread so dramatically in Hubei and is now really circulating rapidly around the world. And that's what makes controlling this virus so much harder than originally thought, you know, and it really also reinforces why it's so important to ramp up the testing, right? We need to find those asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people. We need to find them. We need to trace their contacts. And we need to isolate each and every one of them to stop this virus from spreading further. The other thing that we're learning more about is the actual death rate My colleague Tom Blackwell reported in today's post that the mortality rate is kind of all over the place. It Mm -hmm. varies dramatically from like 0.34% in Germany to nearly 10% in Italy. Right now in Canada, it's hovering around 1%. It's not entirely clear why we're seeing those dramatic geographical differences, but some experts say it's about differences in demographics. For example, you know, age is probably a factor. Older people suffer a higher death toll and Italy has one of the world's, you know, oldest populations. Mm-hmm. I think their median age is around 47, except, you know, Germany's median age is actually slightly higher. So, how do you explain that? You know, smoking probably matters. Close to 20% of Italians smoke, but 
20% of Germans smoke. So, you know, we still really haven't got a handle on the true mortality rate, and that's still concerning. Could you talk a little bit about why older people and people who are immunocompromised, you know, people who maybe are they're diabetic or they have high blood pressure, why those people are so vulnerable to COVID-19? The problem is when people are immunocompromised, their body has a reduced ability to fight off and recover from infections, any infection. And it could be because they have a certain chronic condition that either affects the immune system or it could be because of the drugs they're taking to control that underlying problem. Mm -hmm. Also, as we get older, our immune system naturally becomes weaker. You know, it's harder for us, for the body to fight off infections. And although we know that when we keep hearing 80% of the cases are mild, in severe cases, what's killing people is what's called the cytokine storm is a technical word for it, but it's this major inflammatory storm where the immune system kind of goes berserk. It just overproduces a flood of these inflammatory chemicals. And it's these really hyperactive white blood cells that start attacking not just the virus, the sort of invader, but also healthy tissue. And in this case, tissue in the lungs. Hmm. And what we see with kids is that they seem to have a much better way to sort of put the brakes on that hyperimmune response. They, they, they can do it much more efficiently than older people, which is why we might be seeing so few severe cases in children. So that's sort of the thinking around why, you know, older people especially are particularly vulnerable to severe complications with this virus. So we can understand why it's so important to have these social distancing measures in effect in Canada now. And I think almost everywhere in the country now, there is some kind of regulation in place. We're starting to see governments talking about fining people or even arresting people if they don't respect these public health orders. And we're starting to see a little bit of pushback. Could you talk about what the risks are to public health if people don't follow these orders to stay at home and to maintain a safe distance from other people if they have to leave their houses? There are some reports of some pushback. We're hearing reports from France, especially among the young. You know, in France, they have 100,000 armed police officers now enforcing these passes, laissez-passer, where people have to fill out if they want to leave their house. On the weekend, Nova Scotia declared a state of emergency on Sunday. After the premier, it was interesting to watch him in his press conference. He was visibly furious with people who were ignoring warnings to limit social gatherings and practice, social, or actually what we're now calling physical distancing. Mm -hmm. In Vancouver, there were throngs of people on the seawall on the weekend. And just this week, a story broke about a flock of snowbirds who landed in Brockville on the weekend, and they sort of settled up overnight in the Walmart parking lot and then shopped the next day in defiance of government orders to self-isolate for 14 days. And we also saw those pictures of kids on March break swarming the beaches in Florida before the state closed the beaches. It's part of what experts talk about, sort of the so psychosocial aspect of pandemic response, which often gets overlooked. You know, when people are told to completely upend their lives, there's naturally going to be pushback, right? Pretty much no one alive today has experienced a pandemic like this. And it doesn't help when U.S. President Donald Trump is defiantly saying the U.S. will be open for business again as early as Easter. Mm -hmm. you know, I remember one expert put it this way, it's almost like we don't want the virus to win, so we're going to be defiant. But that's a risky response. 
Because if we don't social distance, the modelers say, you know, here's what's going to happen. The attack rate, meaning the total number of people infected in the population, that doesn't really change that much at all, regardless of what scenario they look at. Essentially, the thinking is, is that 60 to maybe 80% of the Canadian population becomes infected. If we do nothing, they become infected in this four-month window, and we, you know, overwhelm the healthcare system, and potentially thousands or hundreds of thousands of people die, depending on the scenario that you're looking at. But if we spread that 60%, so 24 million Canadians, if we spread those infections out over a year or so using social distancing, then, you know, that peak comes later. You know, the cases don't come fast and furious, and we get time to ramp up capacity in hospitals, that whole flattening the curve. It's really important that people do follow the guidance and instructions from health authorities, which I expect we're going to see will be coming even more, not oppressive, but certainly more in lines of what we just was announced yesterday, where there are now federally mandated quarantines for anybody returning to Canada. They have to go into self-isolation for 14 days, or they risk being fined or arrested. So pretty, you know, governments are getting very serious about the need to maintain that social distancing or physical distancing. Sharon, I'd just like to switch topics a little bit and talk about possible treatments for COVID-19, maybe a cure for this disease. A lot of people would like to see that. So one of the things being talked about are malaria drugs. Donald Trump talked about a couple of them last week, I think. Can you tell us what the research says about these drugs? Like, what are the dangers of them? Because I understand they can have some pretty nasty side effects, right? Yeah, there's been a bit of a mess, actually. Uh, Last week, as you mentioned, Donald Trump said anti-malaria drugs could be a game changer. And there's some evidence they might act against the virus to suppress viral replication, but that evidence is very, very weak. But since then, since Trump said that, there's been a run on the drugs. There's reports of the drugs being diverted, that people are trying to hoard them, kind of the way people hoarded Tamiflu, that antiviral, during the bird flu scare uh, several years ago, many years ago. Um, There are some randomized control trials that are actually happening that are starting to see whether, in fact, these antimalarials do work or make a difference. But they're also being used in these uncontrolled settings, right? Without any really solid evidence, they work. And they were used in China. But again, the evidence there is, one researcher said it's hyper-weak. You know, the studies were very small. They involved like 30 people. And like you say, the drugs can have some, you know, nasty side effects, including potentially causing heart attacks in people when they're used in combination with other drugs, especially when they're used in seniors. There's already reports of people in Nigeria who've overdosed on the drugs thinking it would protect them against coronavirus. Hmm. You know, there's a message this week from Canada's chief public health officer, Teresa Tam, who said, don't do it. You know, don't self-medicate with these medications because there are potentially dangerous side effects to this. So people are obviously looking for something that could cure this disease. Could you talk about how challenging it is to cure something like COVID-19? No, I don't know if anyone really thinks we can cure this virus, because we have to just look at, there are already four other coronaviruses that have moved into the human population. Several of them cause the common cold, especially in kids, and we haven't cured those either. I think more the best hope is that we find effective treatments for people to prevent those severe complications, right? The complications we talked about earlier, those that inflammatory storm that causes people to go into fatal 
respiratory distress. We don't want to be rash, right? One bioethicist I spoke with, Arthur Kaplan at NYU, he said, look, if you throw the kitchen sink against the wall, you're going to get a mess. So if you throw a million pills willy-nilly into the COVID-19 population, and you're not really going to know what's going on, and you risk some pretty nasty side effects, he again was talking about the anti-malarial drugs. It'd be much better if governments could sort of come up with some policies that said, you know, for dying or severely compromised people, severely ill people, we'll try something, we'll try some agents. And they are testing numerous drugs. Some of them are protease inhibitors, drugs that we use to treat HIV. Drugs like that, you know, let's really study them. Let's try to do it in an organized way so that we can figure out if anything helps and so that we also don't cause a slew of unexpected complications. What about vaccines? Like, what does the race look like for developing a vaccine right now? It's incredible, really. Um, one big HIV researcher I spoke with yesterday said he has never in his life or his career seen this much effort being put towards so many vaccine candidates for one disease. And there is a huge scramble to find a vaccine against the virus that causes COVID-19. There are dozens of companies, including several here in Canada, that are moving very rapidly with potential candidates. And the federal government just this week announced $275 million for research, including vaccine research. And one company in the U.S. has already started human trials. And I spoke this week with the chief medical officer of a Quebec City-based company that hopes to start moving its vaccine into human trials by July, maybe sooner. So what we know is that we won't have a vaccine for this first wave. It's not going to happen. The hope is that we will have a vaccine for a second wave if one hits, and most people believe there will be a second wave. The hope is we'll have vaccines available by the spring of 2021 at the latest. But it won't happen in sort of the time frame that some governments would like to see it happen, right? It's not realistic. It's going to be probably at least a year. And so the other thing we need to be careful about as we race to find a vaccine, and the people who are trying to do this tell me the big concern is that what we don't want is a vaccine that causes worse disease. It's this phenomenon known as vaccine-enhanced disease. And they saw it in the 60s when they made a vaccine for RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. And this vaccine was given to lots of people. And it looked like they were generating this really great immune response, except when the kids were later exposed to the natural disease, instead of being protected, they actually got worse. They had worse disease. And the same thing happened with the dengue vaccine that was given to millions of kids in Philippines. So it's a real balance. You have to be so careful. I, this guy I spoke with just this week, he's just returned from Peru. He and his son are in self-isolation. Someone in the apartment they shared in Peru has tested positive. He's with this Quebec-based company. And he talked about, you know, we really want to move forward in a really careful and deliberate way. But on the other hand, as he said it to me, you have older people and people with respiratory and cardiac disease who are dying at these, you know, stunningly high rates when they get infected. You know, we're talking 15, maybe 25% mortality. Mm -hmm. So it's a real balancing act. You know, we, we, we know we're trying to be cautious and careful, but this virus is just spreading so rapidly and the pressure is enormous to find a vaccine as quickly as they can. 
We hear a lot of talk about SARS now, uh, comparing it to what we're seeing with COVID-19. Can we just talk for a minute about whatever happened with work on a vaccine for SARS? This is where it actually gets pretty pathetic when you think of it. Researchers had done really advanced work with a SARS vaccine and a MERS vaccine, but the funding taps were completely shut off when SARS fizzled out. You know, it was hard, if not impossible, to get them into more animal studies, let alone studies into human beings, because pretty well every government said, well, you know, this disease is gone. Why are we funding it? So now we find ourselves in this horrible situation, right? And this virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, is really closely related to SARS. It shares about 80% of its genetic code. That's why the virus is called SARS-CoV-2. So I think what we have now is almost this moral responsibility. We can't let this happen again. We need to prepare and develop vaccines that will respond to any new coronavirus that jumps into humans. We can't shut off the taps again, even if this virus goes away, which it probably won't. Sharon, thank you for this. My pleasure, Monique. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Sharon Kirkey. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Monique Baudin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.